I want to continue with the subject that Dave kicked off last week, and that's the subject of suffering. I want to continue with that theme. And here's my main point. Now, you, you know what a main point is, right? It's that thing you say when somebody asks you during the week, hey, what was the sermon about? This is what you say, right? So, if somebody asks you, in anticipation of that moment, in this case, you would say, if you want to be glorified with Christ, then you must first suffer with Him. I think another way of saying that would be, if, if you want to reach that place in the life that is to come, where, where your lowly body is transformed into the glorious image of Christ's body, then in this life, you must suffer with Him. Now, John chapter 12 is not going to spell that out for us. Not like it's spelled out for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. For the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here's the kicker, verse 17. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So, there is no glory. There is no heaven. You know, and and the transformation that takes place upon our arrival without first suffering with Christ. So it won't be spelled out in John 12, our passage for today, but it is, I believe, the conclusion that He wants us to draw. And once again, bear this in mind, I think it's really important, that when we're looking at any given passage in John, or any given chapter, we bear in mind the end of the book, where John says, the reason that I'm writing to you, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing that, you might have life in His name. So he's writing in relation to salvation. So John chapter 12 has something to say about salvation. And my point, again, is that. I think what he is saying is that unless you suffer with Christ in this life, you're not going to be glorified with Him in the next life. So, let's look a little closer at the text now. Here's my first point. You'll see it in your notes. Few people get this. That is the main point. The point that I just talked about. Most don't. So, look down at verse 1 in chapter 12. And let's read the first eight verses. And then after that, we're going to just skip around from there. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, by the way, 
said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So verse 1 opens by raising the stakes six days before the Passover, which is to say that we have now entered into the last week of Jesus' earthly life. We're in the final week, only six days until Passover, and He will die during that feast. He's going to die in a few days, and He knows it. And so Mary, in anticipation of His death, before He dies, takes nard, pure nard, and she anoints His body with it. And ultimately, she wipes his feet with her hair. Judas, on the other hand, considers what Mary has done to be a waste. And he objects and he, he, he verbalizes his feelings and says, this could have been sold and given to the poor. And of course, Jesus tells him to back off. But it's clear that in this case, Judas... Is, is one of those who just doesn't get it. He just doesn't get what's going on here. He, he cannot attach himself to what is happening. So Judas doesn't get it. Now flip the calendar to the next day. So in verse 12, we see that the, the crowd, or I'm sorry, in verse 9, we see that a large crowd appears on the scene. They come to see Jesus, okay? They, they hear that Jesus is at um, this, this house in Bethany and there's a party there taking place, a feast, a dinner given for Him. And they hear this and so they come out. They appear on the scene there and they come to see Jesus. But John gives us another little insight about them. He says that they're not only there to see Jesus, but they're also there to see Lazarus. Now, you know the nature of the Jews, right? I mean, Paul spells it out in 1 Corinthians when he says that the Jews are always seeking for what? They're always seeking for a sign, right? The Greeks look for wisdom. The Jews, though, they're they're looking for a sign. And and so they're thrill seekers. And so they're here, but, but John lets us in on their what I think their true motive, that they're really here because they're interested in Lazarus, this guy that was dead, that that came out of the tomb after being dead several days. So, right away we're suspicious of their motives, in the least. Nevertheless, John says that many of them believed in Jesus. So it, it seems so far so good. Okay, But now flip the calendar to the next day. Look down at verse 12. And, and notice that the large crowd in verse 12 that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So now this crowd is, is shifting their focus. They know that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And so they 
gather some palm branches and they go out to meet Jesus on his way. And they wave these palm branches and and they cry out as he enters the city, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means Lord save now. So they wave and they sing this. Even the king of Israel, they claim. But, but notice how Jesus enters the city. In fulfillment of a prophecy, he does not come in as you would expect the king to come in. He does not come in on a white stallion. You know, He comes in on a donkey. That's how they say it down south, by the way, donkey. Which is to say something about the humility of Jesus, right? And the perception that Jesus has of himself in relation to the Messiah that he has been called to be on behalf of the Jews. He's rejecting their schemes, their plans, their purposes, and embracing the purpose of his heavenly Father as he enters on this donkey. And then down in verse 27. So skip ahead to verse 27. Um, by the way, back to verse 18 before we leave. 17 and 18. Uh, notice again about the crowd. They continue with Jesus as he enters the city and they're bearing witness to him. So they're not phased by the fact that he's on a donkey. They're, they're, they're just keep bearing witness. This is our king, they're saying. And we see in verse 18... John says again, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that he had done a sign. Or he'd done this sign, meaning the sign of raising Lazarus. So once again, you know, our suspicions are raised about their, their motives. And need I remind you that the crowd will be singing a different song in a few days. Okay. Now, skip ahead to verse 27. Jesus says, Jesus talking in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd, verse 29, that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, An angel has spoken, and Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So what what the crowd, in essence, is, is indicating is that they have really no category for this suffering Son of Man that Jesus keeps talking about. They have a category for a conquering Messiah who comes in and assumes the the throne of David and begins to rule, but they have no category for the suffering Son of Man. So they're disconnected from the sufferings of Jesus and 
So John offers this conclusion about the crowd down in verse 37. He says, Though he had done so many signs before them, before them they still did not believe in him. So, so it's like the crowd toys with belief. You know, they entertain belief. They even appear to believe at times. But when it comes down to it, when everything has been said and done about Jesus, they still do not believe in Him. So like Judas, the crowd doesn't get it. And then one other group of people in verse 42, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in Him. So you got a lot of the authorities believing in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Okay? So, they're believing. But John causes you to question the authenticity of that belief, doesn't he? When he says, you know, they, they did not confess it. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue because they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. So what would you conclude about somebody whose faith resembles that? Would you think that they were genuine believers? Authentic believers? Probably not. So here's the picture, okay? Here's the picture that John is presenting in chapter 12. And i got to tell you, I've gained so much respect for the book of John having gone through it and, and, and still going through it and how John presents his material, the material, no doubt, that the Holy Spirit has given him. And, and this whole narrative process, stories are being told. And as I indicated earlier, things are not being spelled out, but yet that's the cool thing about stories and, and narrative material. It's like you have to dig in and you have to discover what the moral of the story is, as it were. You know, well, what is he getting at? And you have to use, um, you know, your imagination as well as, you know, the gifts that God's given you to draw those conclusions. And so here's, here's the conclusion, I think, in terms of the characters that are being represented. You have groups of people that encounter this idea of the suffering servant, the suffering son of man, the suffering savior. They come really close. They see him and they back off. Three groups of people okay, that, that do that. Also in the chapter, you have two extremes. Two extremes and I think one mass middle of people. You have... Judas, he's an extreme, right? There is no doubt that he is inauthentic. There's no question about him. And then you have Mary. There's no doubt about Mary, is it? There's no doubt about her being authentic on the other hand. She is completely authentic. We, we see what she has done. She has embraced the Savior in His suffering moment. She has prepared him for death before he ever dies. She's the only one in the whole chapter who gets it. Right? Everybody else is missing it left and right. 
But Mary gets it. She gets it so much. Even better than, than his disciples. She gets it so much that she is able to anticipate his death. That's how much insight she has. And she prepares him for his death before he ever dies. Mary is embracing the suffering Savior. Judas immediately rejects him. He'll have nothing to do with him. He's got his own plan, his own purpose, and he knows that Jesus is not going to help him get there. And then in the middle, you have the crowds. And like I said, with the crowds, there's always this question mark. Are you for real or are you not? You know, are you Judas or are you Mary? And I think, you know, as, as you read and take in this, this narrative material, you know, as you read, you're like looking at these people and you're going, okay, which one do I identify with most? You can't help but do that. Who am I? Where am I in this story? If I was there, what would I be doing? Right? I mean, it just naturally happens. And so, that's the question that jumps off of the page and into your lap today. And not just you, but every person who's ever read John chapter 12, you know, 3rd century, 5th century, 7th century, 12th, 15th, 19th century, 21st century, every person who's ever, ever read John's material and given it any kind of thought, the question is presented, whose side are you on? Are you one who gets it? And you're in, you're in that extreme camp with Mary? Or are you one who does not get it? And what is it that we're trying to get? Once again, what's the main point? If you want to be glorified with Christ, then you must suffer with Him. Do we really get that? Is that the Savior that we have embraced? You know, 2014 Americans, is that the Savior that we really embrace? Did you sign up for suffering? Did you sign up for suffering? You should have, right? So what if I sit around a clipboard today with a sign-up sheet and it says, listen, sign up for suffering with Jesus this week. Would you sign your name on that sheet? I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, be careful what you wish for, Phil, right? Okay, I mean, and I get it. You know, there, there is a recoil factor when we think about suffering. But yet, that is what we have signed up for. At least, I hope you get that. I hope you see that. I think John hopes that you see that. Because he wants you in Mary's shoes. Embracing the suffering Christ. Now, if you want to side with Mary, if you've made that decision, you want to embrace the suffering Christ, I think the next thing to ask is, what does it mean to suffer with Christ then? What does that mean? Well, first let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It it doesn't mean that you suffer with Christ in the sense that you pay for your sins. 
right? I mean, that has been done by Christ. It could only be done by Christ. No other person could pay the penalty for your sins. So his suffering for sin, in terms of enduring the wrath of God, poured out upon him on behalf of sin, that is over. And that's why Jesus said on the cross, his last words, it is finished. And that's why we sing, Jesus paid it all. He paid every ounce of suffering on our behalf. So it doesn't mean that. Second of all, it is not a suffering for disobedience. We're not talking about suffering for disobedience. Peter talks about this. Maybe you remember when we went through Peter reading this. Peter says, listen, what good is it if you suffer um, for, for wrongdoing? What good is that? He says, it's no credit to you. You're basically getting what you deserve when you suffer for sin, when you suffer for disobedience. So, so we're not talking about suffering with Christ in relation to that. Now let me just say, if, if you are suffering because of some disobedience, um, there is grace for you nonetheless, right? Because if, if you did some wrong and you're suffering, well, guess what? Jesus died for that wrong that you did. And, and so He has covered the suffering for that sin. And you can come to Him and be released of the pain and misery of guilt and condemnation. You might have to suffer some consequences for what you've done, but nonetheless, you can be free of guilt and condemnation because Jesus releases you from that suffering. But when we talk about suffering with Christ, you can't count that kind of suffering in regards to this. The type of suffering that qualifies is not suffering for disobedience, but it's suffering for obedience. Suffering for obedience. Christ suffered. Christ Himself suffered because of His obedience to the will of God. He's suffering in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, He says. And Dave talked about this last week when he brought up a word. And he said, you know, if you look at the Greek word, there's much more going on. Here, and that the same is true with this word troubled. The Greek verb is very strong. It means revulsion. It means horror. It means agitation. Jesus is in agony. He is in deep agony. But notice how He responds at this moment. How he responds to his father. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. In other words, that's why I'm here. I came to die. Father, glorify your name. I want you to catch that. He says, Father, glorify your name. What is he talking about? He's talking about His death, is He not? He's talking about God getting glory in His death. To which God responds with a voice from heaven. And I just love this. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. 
God is saying, listen, I have, I have glorified my name, Jesus, in your life. Your obedient life. All the way. It's been a wonderful ride. You have been the perfect son. The son in whom I'm well pleased. And I'm about to glorify my name again in your death. Because your death is going to be something glorious. Something glorious to behold. You know, Peter talks about the glory of Jesus' death. He says this. He's talking to the people he's writing to. He says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. So he's saying, you know, um, recipients of my letter, you've been called to suffering because Christ also suffered for you. So you've been called to suffer for Him. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He died leaving you an example. He, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And I think Peter is talking about Jesus' experience in the last several hours of his life. When he was reviled, he he didn't revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That's the example that Jesus has left for us. And so, so what is happening in Jesus' death, you see, as Jesus is obeying his, his heavenly Father, you know, commands like, love your enemy, you know. As Jesus is doing that, as he's obeying his heavenly Father, his heavenly Father is being glorified. God is shining brightly in his, in his life. And so, we've been left an example that we might follow in His steps. And so I think this is how it works in terms of the suffering we're talking about today because it is a multifaceted subject, this whole subject of suffering. I think it's this. Whenever we encounter suffering, okay, we are tempted not to follow in Jesus' steps. We're tempted not to embrace our suffering Savior in the sense that we want to replicate, by example, what He presented to us in His example. We would rather run from suffering Right? Again, I get it. I'm the same way. We would rather avoid suffering when we can, when we can choose to do so. I think another way we avoid suffering too is, is I think sometimes we think in suffering, we have this free pass, you know, that we can kind of just be ugly and mean and, Bad people. You know, we give ourselves an excuse, right? Uh, yeah, I know, I was, I was really mean and insulting the other day, but you know what? 
I dropped a computer on my foot and it was hurting. Therefore, I, I know you understand. We give ourselves a pass, right? And so we avoid suffering. We choose not to suffer whenever difficulty and hardship and trials and tribulation come our way. We choose not to embrace the suffering Savior. We choose not to suffer with Him. You know, this is a little different take on suffering in the sense that, you know, we're not necessarily talking about the grand suffering. You know, when something major happens in your life. You know, I'm talking about the millions of things that happen from the time you get up to the time you go to sleep. The millions of little things. Right? All, all those little opportunities that you have to suffer with Christ, to embrace your suffering Savior versus you know, taking your own path. Pursuing what you think is best. I, I don't know about you, but 999,000 of those million times for me, in a day, has to do with my tongue and, and what I say. And, and I don't know if, you know if it's just for those of us who tend to be more talkative. Um, maybe some of you who think about what you're going to say first, you don't struggle as much as I do. But there are times when I'm in and around friends or, or the company of my family, uh, maybe my wife in particular, and... and Something comes up or something is said, and, and I have a moment to consider how I'm going to respond. You know? And, and I can say something that makes me feel good. I can say something that lifts me up higher than her, puts me on the pedestal. And, and unfortunately, many times I do. Or. I can say something or choose not to say something that's going to help her and benefit her. It, it, it constantly, you know, is going on in my head. Do you say this or do you not? You know, what's the Holy Spirit want you to say in this moment? You know, and it's like, oh, oh sometimes I just so want to advance my own cause. And the Holy Spirit is like, bring that tongue back here. Do, do you have that experience? Maybe not that dramatic, but do you know? Do you know what you're doing? If, if you know, in a case like that, when, when you're tempted to say something that you shouldn't say, and 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 you die to that urge, you know what you're doing. You are suffering with Christ. You're suffering with Christ because that is the same type of suffering that he endured in his life, a suffering that associates with obedience. Where did we ever get the notion that, that obedience didn't bring along with it pain, right? Do you ever, you ever reach a place of temptation and you're like... Uh, you know, I shouldn't do that. And you fight it off and the temptation keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps, keeps hounding you. And then finally you go, okay, enough. I'll just do it. Did you ever do that? Obedience requires suffering. 
sometimes. Sometimes more than others. Sometimes it's pretty easy and the temptation doesn't keep hounding you. But sometimes it does and it requires suffering. And that's part of it. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that none of us have suffered to the point of shedding our blood. Now, I think that's what it means to suffer with Jesus. It's suffer like Jesus suffered. Suffer in the same manner that He suffered. Repeat, replicate His suffering. He was obedient to the point of death. Philippians 2 tells us. He was obedient to the point of death. Suffer along with Him as you are obedient to that same point. Now, let me... Let me move us toward a close real quickly here. Last point. The world needs you to suffer with Christ. Okay, so notice verse... um, Twenty. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So these Greeks came to Philip. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then went on and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come. So it was like a light switch. You know, it, when the Greeks came, Jesus knew that it was his hour. I mean, he already had a really good idea, but now he knew for sure. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Truly, truly, verse 24, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So when, when you're pursuing Christ and you... Are, when you're pursuing suffering with Christ and you are suffering in relation to obedience to God's will, whether it be in little things or big things, then you are dying to yourself. You are planting yourself down in the soil like a wheat seed. Now, of course, Jesus was talking about himself primarily here when he talks about the, the seed of wheat being um, dying and fruit coming from it. But yet, it's also passed on to us. And that's obvious by, by the next verse where he says in verse 24, or I'm sorry, verse 25, whoever loves his life, so he says, whoever, whoever loves his life, loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So hate is a euphemism, and it means, you know, you've got to think way less about yourself. You've you got to die to yourself. You've got to plant yourself in the soil. And obedience gets you there. When you're obeying Christ, you're dying to yourself. You're planting yourself in the soil. And that, that is where fruit comes from. You know, that's the type of life, in other words. A life that's embraced the sufferings of Jesus. A life of obedience to Him and dying to self. That's the type of life that, that reproduces life. That's the type of life that makes a difference. So, you know, I was thinking we can come to West Dallas, as we have, 
And we can talk about reaching this city for Jesus Christ. And we have. I'm glad we have. But don't think for one minute that we're going to reach the people outside these walls without suffering. It costs something. Really, really, it, it costs everything that we have. You know, it costs our most precious possession. You know, it's something that's expensive. You know, it, it costs that of us to lay it at the Savior's feet and to pour it out upon Him and to say, you know, the only thing that matters to me is you. That, that's all that matters. That I honor you. That I glorify you. You can suffer with Christ and produce fruit and glorify God in the process. Or you can, as Judas shows, you can rob God of His glory. That's exactly what he was doing. He was, he was stealing from God, right? That money was Jesus's. And he had his hand in the bag and he was taking it. He was stealing from God. And when we don't suffer with Christ, we rob God of His glory. You know, the cool thing is, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, the cool thing is that the irony of it is that there is a glory in suffering. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, what does that mean? It's like, if I be crucified, if I be, you know, driven through with spikes and bloodied and speared, if that happens, I'm going to draw people to God? If my life is wasted, I'm going to draw people to God? Well, yes, because it was how He suffered that was such a glorious thing. Such an amazing thing. Something that has captured the imagination of people for centuries. And that will be the same thing that captures the imagination of lost people in and around us. As they watch you endure your suffering. Suffering with Christ for Him. Glorifying God in the process. Let's pray.